have five children. Our third daughter is a teacher in the education system in New South Wales. She began as a casual teacher, that is she'd go to a school and just teach a day casually and may well go back to that school. On one occasion she returned to a school and when she came home from the second day I said to Ashley, how did you go? She said, oh, well, when I got into the staff room another of the teachers said, oh, it's you again. Now, what did that mean? Well, you had to be there. You had to listen to the tone of voice that was used. You had to look on the face of the person speaking. They could have said with a scowl, oh, it's you again. Or they could have said with a smile, oh, it's you again. Context was all important. Now, Luke has told us at the beginning of his Gospel when he wrote for Theophilus that he wrote an orderly account. That means that context is going to be vitally important. Uh, When we speak to someone, we can look at the look on their face, we can hear the tone of their language and we can interpret. We have no such luxury when we come to written material. And so context is vitally important. We come today to a parable which I think is probably the best known of Jesus' parables. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, It is also a parable unique to Luke. It's not in Matthew, it's not in Mark, it's not in John. Luke alone has this parable. But I want you to know and notice as we look at this parable, if you've got your Bibles open there at Luke chapter 10 verse 25, that this parable has a context. So just as, oh, it's you again, requires a bit of work to do in the context, so this parable of the Good Samaritan also provides a bit of work to do in the context. Notice that a scribe is asking Jesus two questions. Luke tells us he asked two questions and Luke also tells us the motivation for each question and this is the immediate context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. A scribe was an expert in the law. They became expert because a scribe before the days of photocopiers basically copied out uh, on scrolls copies of the law and so became expert in the law. This man comes to test Jesus according to verse 25 and he has this question. How may I interpret eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to know that when Messiah comes I'm going to be part of his kingdom? What must I do? And Jesus simply says to him, and and notice that he's asking this question to test Jesus. He wants to expose Jesus and his lack of orthodoxy. Jesus, however, puts the question back to him, see? He says, well, you're the scribe. You're the expert in the law. What do you say it says? And the man responds, well, well, I'll love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbour as yourself. And Jesus says, that's correct, do that. That's a good definition of the good life according to the covenant. Love God wholeheartedly and love your neighbour as yourself. Do this, Jesus says, and you will live. Now the man's got a problem and this leads to his second question. He now asks Jesus, and who is my neighbour? But his motivation now, notice, is to justify himself. That is... He wants to make sure that he can love his neighbour because of the identity of his neighbour. Who is his neighbour? Is it a member of his immediate family? That'll be all right. 
But what if it's that person at work that he doesn't get on with? Or what if it's that neighbour in the apartment block that he doesn't like? What if it's those poor people or those rich people or those undereducated people or those overeducated people? What if it's those enthusiastic Pentecostals? What if it's those constipated Anglicans? And what if it's those stiff and starchy Presbyterians? Who is my neighbour, he asks, in order to justify himself? Oh, it's you again. Requires a lot of work in the context. Look at the context of this parable. What must I do to inherit eternal life to test Jesus? Love God, love your neighbour as yourself. Now to justify myself, who is my neighbour? And the parable notice begins at verse 30. A man, probably a Jew, is going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's an infamous road. It's a road populated by thieves. Sure enough, on this notorious road, the man gets beaten up and he's left lying (coughs) in his own blood. Verse 31, a priest came by. Now remember, you are listening to the story with the ear of the scribe and you've got no time for priests. Here's the priest from the temple. He comes by, he sees the man lying in his own blood and he goes by on the other side and ignores the man in his need. And you say, yeah, well, that's typical of the priest. And do you know who comes next? A Levite comes next. One responsible for the mechanical aspects of the services in the temple and the synagogue. A Levite comes down. And the, pre, and, the, and the scribe has even less time for the Levite. And he sees the man lying in his blood and he goes by on the other side as well. And you say, well, typical of the Levite. And do you know who comes next? Of course I know who comes next. The scribe is going to come next. A scribe's going to come next. Is he? See, here is a man lying in his own blood. Here comes the Archbishop of Canterbury, an Anglican. He looks at the man and goes by on the other side. Yeah, typical Anglican. <laughs> Do you know who comes next? The Pope. The Pope. He looks at the man lying in his own blood and he goes by on the other side. Typical Roman Catholic. Do you know who comes next? Yes the moderator general of the Presbyterian Church comes next. (laughs) Well, see who comes next. It's actually the imam from the local mosque. He comes next. A Samaritan. There was some distance between the Jew and the Samaritan. The Samaritans, 800 years before, had intermarried with the Assyrians. They were Jews who intermarried with the Assyrians. They were looked down on. But look at the extraordinary lengths. Look at verse 34 and 35. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. The great lengths to which this Samaritan went to look after the man. And notice Jesus' question in verse 36. Which of these was a neighbour to the man? Not who is my neighbour, but which of these was a neighbour to the man? In verse 37, the scribe cannot even say the word Samaritan. He says, the the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. You see, the Samaritan cared without regard to colour, race, creed. He loved without boundaries. For the the For the Samaritan, you spelled neighbour, H-U-M-A-N, human, not J-E-W, Jew. Eternal life, you see, if you want eternal life, Jesus is saying, you cannot limit the identity of neighbour. 
everyone is your neighbour. It has the widest possible reference. Now, just keep your finger there if you would and flip over to Luke chapter 18 and have a look at that. Luke chapter 18, verse 18. And here, Jesus is asked the same question but now by another man, a rich ruler. Uh, Luke chapter 18, verse 18, where the ruler says to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus takes him to the commandments which show that he should love his neighbour. And he says in verse 21, oh, I've kept all these since I was a boy. And then Jesus says, you still lack one thing, sell everything you have and give to the poor and then come and follow me. And the man went away because he was very rich. So here's a man who wants to know that he's got eternal life. Love God, love your neighbour. Well, he's got the neighbour bit covered. Look, he's done all that since he was a boy. It's the God bit that he's got a problem with. You shall have no other gods before me. But he had great wealth and he treated his wealth as his God. And whereas he thought he had eternal life by law, the reality, his problem wasn't the number of neighbours he's had. His problem was God. And his God, he loved wealth before he loved Almighty God. So what is this showing us if you go back to chapter 10? It is showing us that no matter what, the law, the law is not a parable about being good. You cannot be good enough because the law is extensively demanding on us. How good do you have to be to be in the presence of God? You have to be perfect and you cannot simply be in the presence of God through keeping the law. It's a bit like going to the doctor. I've got a fever. The doctor says, stick this thermometer in your mouth. He takes the thermometer out and he says, you do have a high temperature. My prescription is take this thermometer home, take your temperature three times a day, come back in a week's time and we'll see how you are. You say, wait on, that's not the the answer to my problem. The thermometer just tells me I've got a problem. No, you need to give me some solution. And the law is like that. The law defines sin, the law defines you as a sinner, but it does not provide any solution for the problem of sin. So here is this man, this scribe, he goes home to his wife and his wife says to him, what have you been doing today? And he says, I went out to test that young rabbi Jesus. How did you go? Not so well, I suspect. Well, what did you say? Well, I said to him, tell me, how can I have eternal life? And he turned the question back on me. He said, well, you tell me. Well, what did you say? Well, I said, love God and love your neighbour as yourself. And he said, correct, do this and you'll live. But then I thought to myself, well, who is my neighbour? So I said to him, who is my neighbour? And what did he say? Well, he told me the story of the man going down that road to Jericho, you know, that really bad road, and he gets beaten up by robbers and he's lying, dying in his own blood And down comes a priest and walks by and ignores the man's plight. And then down comes a Levite and walks by and ignores the man's plight. And then down comes one of those, you know, one of those people who intermarried with the Assyrians 800 years ago, a Samaritan, yeah, one of those. He came down and he looked after the man, went to great lengths. And then he said to me, which of you, these three, do you think was a neighbour to the man who had the problem? And I said, well, one of, those, this is one of those people who intermarried with the, you know, the, the one who had mercy on him. And he said to me, go and do likewise. Well, she said, you've got your work cut out for you, haven't you? In other words, you've got to love everybody and you can't even love my mother. <laughs> ask him, didn't you ask him how you can have eternal life? You see, he's told you that you cannot have eternal life by achievement. 
Friends, loving God and loving your neighbour, that's covenant life, isn't it? That's the good life. That's the life of the redeemed. That's the life of the fruit of our relationship with God, but that's not the way into our relationship with God. We don't earn a relationship with God by coming and loving him and loving everyone else. So how can we have eternal life? Oh, it's you again. Context. Well, have a look in your Bibles there in verses 21 and 22 and you'll see the context. The context is that the 72 have returned from mission and they've seen all sorts of things in submission to them. And the Lord Jesus in verse 21 prays. He prays, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you've hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. All things, look at this, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father and no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So in other words, Jesus is saying to the 72 that eternal life is not a matter of discovery. Eternal life is not a matter of earning. Eternal life is not something that humans can say, I've done. Eternal life revolves on revelation. Those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Who can know God? Who can have eternal life and know God? Only those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. That's how you can have eternal life. My wife and I were in London on the Jubilee Sunday when the flotilla was on the Thames. We didn't know any way we were going to see the flotilla. We turned up to church that Sunday morning and a man said to us, would you like to come to my apartment on the Thames? We said we'd love to come. We went down and we saw the flotilla And then we walked home and as we walked home we came to a street which was barricaded and the police said you can't cross because the Queen and all the royal family are about to come back from the river on the way back to Buckingham Palace. So we waited there and we noticed that as the royal cavalcade came along each of the royal family couples had their own car and every single couple in the royal family had their windows up because it was a cold, wet, windy afternoon, except the Queen. She alone had her window down and here she was passing six, six feet in front of me. It was amazing. There she was, royalty. People say, what did she look like? Well, she looked like an 86-year-old lady who'd been, stand, who'd been standing out in the rain for four hours. That's what she looked like. I feel sorry for her, the poor thing. But the point is, if she'd have kept the window up, I couldn't have seen her really. But here she was. She had a commitment to be seen. The fact that I could see her wasn't because of my merit. I hadn't written an email to the palace saying, when she comes past, could you make sure she's got the window down? I deserve it. I'm a good man. It was her initiative to have the window down. Now, you see, if you look at verse 22, all things have been committed to Jesus by the Father. No one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Will Jesus reveal the Father to me? I cannot earn it. I cannot be worthy of it. I cannot morally deserve it. The question is, has he a will to reveal his heavenly father to me? It is a wonderful, wonderful truth 
that verse 23 tells us, Jesus said to his disciples, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. It's not a matter of earning. It's not a matter of performance. It is a matter of being blessed. How hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. What is impossible with men is, is, is possible with God. If eternal life depends on me in any way, I can't be sure I've done enough. Muhammad's only daughter, Fatima, comes to her father. Oh, father, she says, tell me how I can be sure that when I die, I go to be with Allah in eternity. Muhammad said the path to paradise is very slippery and it is a slender thread. Allah can push us off either side. The only advice I can give daughter is try to build merit. That is the problem, isn't it? Of all religion, it tells me what I have to do. But biblical Christianity tells me that eternal life is God's gift to give. If eternal life could be mined by earning, Jesus didn't have to come, but he had to come because he had to rescue us because we could not rescue ourselves. Oh, it's you again. Context. Well, go down to verse 38 and we see in the context what comes after this and you'll see that this is the incident where Martha is very busy and we can sympathise with her because her sister Mary is simply not helping her. And so Martha goes to the Lord Jesus and complains to the Lord Jesus that Mary is just sitting there listening to him and not really paying attention to matters in the kitchen. Look at what Jesus says in verse 41. Martha, Martha, you are wearied and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. One thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better. How can I have eternal life? Sit at the feet of Jesus. Ask him to give it to you. Tell him you do not deserve it. Tell him you haven't loved God wholeheartedly. Tell him that you haven't loved everybody as your neighbour as yourself. Ask him for the introduction because without the introduction you will never have eternal life and you will find that there is no reluctance on God's part. He will introduce you to his heavenly father and to know his heavenly father is to have life itself. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to your cross I cling. Naked turn to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me saviour or I die. And then having had that introduction and knowing him by grace, I then go out into a life of loving him wholeheartedly and loving others in his name. But it is in that order. Now, as you can see, I uh, attend a gym in Sydney very regularly. (laughs) Why are you laughing? (laughs) Uh, I go to the gym at four o'clock in the morning and there are about a half a dozen of us then Uh, They're very good friends of mine. The gym is about half the size of this building. We get there at 4am. Five of them are Roman Catholics. I'm the only non-Roman Catholic. I'm the Protestant. In Australia, you show your affection for people by being rude to them. And so, they are rude to me constantly because I'm a Protestant and I'm not a Roman Catholic. But they are very good friends. 
Uh, recently I was giving a double lecture at our college one evening about prosperity theology and I asked them all to come and some of them came and the next morning after the gym work we went down to the coffee shop because we always go to the gym then we go to the coffee shop just to compensate for the gym work at the coffee shop <laughs> and I said to my good friend Bern, I said, what did you think of the lecture last night? And he said, I, I, he said, I thought it was really good. What particularly structure, I said. Well, when you said that two comes before three. I thought, man, that's not so significant, two before three, but it is very significant. So, if you look back at Exodus chapter 20, the point I was making that night is that two comes before three. Have a look at Exodus chapter 20. You'll know that chapter because it's the chapter where God lists the Ten Commandments. But I want you to notice that verse three is the first of the commandments you shall have no other gods before me. But that's verse 3. What is verse 2? Verse 2, God reminds them that he has redeemed them. Look at verse 2. I am the Lord your God, Exodus 20 verse 2, who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. In other words, God says, I have redeemed you, therefore this is how you live, the Ten Commandments. He does not say, I will redeem you if you live this way. There's nothing conditional about God's redemption. God says, I have redeemed you, therefore live this way. Not, I will redeem you if you live this way. And of course, two comes before three. That is a very big breakthrough for a Roman Catholic to understand that God's redemption always comes first and our moral living is the fruit of redemption, not the other way around. And so I remember when John Coleman came back from Iran. John Coleman had worked with his wife as a medical missionary in Iran. The Ayatollah Khomeini came to power. They locked John Coleman up and locked his wife up elsewhere and they didn't see each other for about 18 months to two years. When Dr Coleman came back to Australia, he was interviewed and the Roman Catholic interview said, interviewer said to him, how is it that a religion can cause people to do those sorts of things so inhumanely to one another? And Dr Coleman looked at the interviewer and said, don't you realise I'm a Christian? I hate religion. Of course we hate religion. Man's effort, people's effort to bring themselves into relationship with God. People's effort to help God save them. That's religion. Religion, you do the impossible. And yet when religion tells us to do the impossible, be perfect. It knows that we cannot be and then it threatens us with the worst punishment if we don't. You'll go to hell if you're not. Religion is doubly cruel. And here is a parable, friends, that is used to cause us to build confidence in our ability to be good enough. No, it doesn't. It teaches us that it is impossible to be good enough. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Who is my neighbour? Oh, it's you again. Context. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. Sit at his feet. Ask him to mercifully introduce you to his heavenly Father. And he will. And then enter into a life of loving him and loving others, your neighbour as yourself. That's what this parable is about. Christianity is not about earning. It's not about deserving. 
It's not about meriting. It's not about me helping God save me. It's about what God has done. It's about God in all this sovereignty winding down the window and revealing himself to us. Ask him for an introduction and he will introduce you to his heavenly father and then live a life of love for him and for others. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much that you left nothing for us to do because we couldn't have done it. Thank you that in the face of religion which makes demands and yet threatens when we can't do the impossible, a doubly cruel religion, that you sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die the death of a substitute which he didn't deserve and that you have said that all introductions to you come through him. Help us to be like Mary who sat at your feet. One thing is necessary, that we humble ourselves and listen to you and ask you to introduce us to our Heavenly Father whom to know is life itself. We give you praise and thanks for this in Jesus' name. Amen.